So if you'd look with me, please, at Romans chapter 2. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience and not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. This is the word of our Lord. Well, we've gathered already that Paul doesn't know this particular congregation to whom he is addressing. Paul doesn't know the Roman church. However, Paul does know how humans work. And we might say that this is one of the benefits of the Christian walk. The Bible, over time, makes us, as it were, a journeyman of the human soul. We learn about how the human soul works. And as we mature as Christians, we go on from being uh, diploma holders with regards to our knowledge of the human soul to become uh, apprentices. And then we go from our apprenticeship to become certified journeymen of the, of the human soul. We, we expect this to happen in our Christian walk that we would learn more and more about how humans work. Christianity teaches us how to understand what it means to be a created being, a creature belonging to him. And so Paul knows a few things about the Roman church, even without ever having visited them, because he knows a few things about how the human soul works. And so Paul has, in verse 18, already made it clear that the righteousness of God is vastly different than the righteousness of humans. A human righteousness is nothing like God's righteousness. In fact, there's such a gap between the two that human righteousness is actually going to be seen as no righteousness at all, and human righteousness will actually be seen as deserving God's righteous wrath. And so this is why the gospel is so powerful. In the gospel, God's righteousness is revealed, but without being, bringing danger to the unrighteous. God's righteousness and human unrighteousness is clearly known by all, even though not all are saved by the gospel. And so Paul is going to explain this later, since in uh, verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1, we find the table of contents, really, of the entire letter. But the gospel tells us that through faith... The unrighteous man and the unrighteous woman is able to bear the righteousness of God, even the righteous indignation of God, because of their unrighteousness. This is the power of the gospel. This is how the unrighteous can be saved by the righteous one. And so, Paul doesn't know the Roman church, but he knows how humans work. They're unrighteous, they're in need of the gospel. And so Paul's perfectly aware that humans, uh, they actually don't like being made aware of this. Uh, Humans don't like being told, you are unrighteous, you are hopelessly deficient, you are undeserving. And Paul knows that people 
don't like hearing this. But he knows the Roman congregation well enough to know that they actually need to hear this, just as we this morning need to hear this. He tells the Roman Christians that God has revealed his own righteousness in such a way that people can know that they're unrighteous. You know, there's actually a proof, Paul says, of human unrighteousness. A proof, even without quoting the Old Testament. In fact, when we look at our passage from last week and our passage this morning, we find that human unrighteousness is clearly exposed. Paul's argument last week about how human unrighteousness is exposed is an argument from what theologians call natural theology. There are some things about the way the world is constructed, the way the world functions, that ought to convince us that we're unrighteous before God. Theologians call this natural theology. Paul says that uh, these uh, evidences of being unrighteous before God, that at the end of chapter 1, and the evidence that he's going to show us at the beginning of chapter 2, are both evidences that show that human beings are without excuse. That Greek word for without excuse shows up in verse one, or chapter 1, verse 21, and it shows up in the first verse of our passage this morning, 2 verse 1 and nowhere else in the Greek New Testament. That word for without excuse. It appeared in last week's passage and it appears in this week's passage. And, and I believe that that serves to unite these two testimonies of how it is that God proves to humans that they are indeed unrighteous. And let me tell you what I mean. How is human unrighteousness exposed? Well, just to recap what Paul has said last week in verses 18 through 31 of chapter 1, human uh, unrighteousness is exposed in the cosmic ordering of the world. It is revealed from heaven, Paul says in verse 18 of chapter 1. Humans are enabled to perceive their own unrighteousness because they perceive God's righteousness in simply the way creation's ordered. Since creation... Paul says the things that have been made by God actually reveal God's own invisible attributes. Creation itself, the way that it is ordered, shows that human beings are unrighteous. What this means is that uh, human beings, by virtue of being creatures of God, regardless of their profession of faith, regardless of their thoughts about the gospel, uh, human beings, by virtue of being human beings in a universe ordered by God, know that murder is wrong. And this is mysterious, but without the Old Testament, without uh, lectures of an opinionated church, the, the world knows that murder is undesirable. And likewise, uh, Paul says at the end of chapter one that the world knows that slander, destroying someone's reputation, that that's wrong. Identity theft, we all would agree, is frowned upon, even without the ninth commandment. And also, Paul says, again, at the end of, verse, of chapter 1, uh, maliciousness, uh, uncontrolled antagonism towards a person that's not acceptable to the world. We don't expect that to happen without punishment in the workplace, for instance. We just 
know these things intrinsically are somehow wrong. The, the cosmic order of the universe reveals that murder and slander and maliciousness, well, they're just not good. And this is what Paul means when he says in verse 21 of chapter 1 that we are without excuse. We know that these things are bad, yet we all know that they exist in the world. Now, it's worth noting, these indicators, they, they get compressed and reshaped over time, don't they? Again, uh, this only serves to prove human unrighteousness, to prove that we are without excuse. But let me give you some examples. If we look at the evidences of human unrighteousness in chapter 1, verses 29 through 31, we see that some of them are really not as bad today as they once were. That our, our notice of some of these things doesn't stand out today the way it did in the world of our parents or our grandparents or before. And so, for instance, uh, to be deceitful, well, that's bad for children, but deceitfulness can actually serve to get you a little bit ahead in business, get you a little bit ahead in the world. And we might call it craftiness instead of deceitfulness. And think about uh, covetous, covetousness there, uh, there again at the end of chapter one. Uh, covetousness today is almost uh, a virtue. It's how we uh, aspire to gain more in this world, to keep up with the Joneses, and not only that, to uh, overcome the Joneses. We're going to start by coveting the Joneses. And I think about uh, disobeying parents. Well, this to many ears, just sounds old-fashioned. Sometimes we need to disobey our parents, we might say today. And so, uh, Paul is going to say that uh, our responses to these things are, are really only going to continue to prove that we are unrighteous before God. As we uh, change these things, as we flatten these things, Paul says that we are actually suppressors of the truth. God shows his righteousness in the ordering of the world. We see these things, Paul says, uh, plainly, but we, we stamp them down. And as we stamp them down, we are only showing our own unrighteousness more clearly, further illustrating our need for a very powerful gospel to save the unrighteous who suppress the truth of God. Real quickly before uh, moving on, again, I'm arguing that the very end of chapter 1, the very beginning of chapter 2, uh, Paul is saying the same thing, uh, one of them cosmically and one of them microcosmically. But continuing to look at the end of chapter 1, think about the evidence of unrighteousness and that humans are haters of God. Paul says in 1 verse 30 that we are haters of God. God has actually made us to not be haters of God. God has constituted us in such a way that all human beings uh, yearn for the divine in some way. But if we think about this, uh, today very few in America would say that hating God is something to be desirable, right? Or maybe not. Let me just provide uh, a brief example. A historian, Philip uh, Blom, tells the story of the French Enlightenment. 
So this is the 18th century. And he talks about how this intellectual crowd of writers and philosophers, artists and mathematicians would gather together to discuss the ideas of the age. But in that crowd, in that illustrious elite crowd, even Voltaire stood out as being unacceptable. When Voltaire began to openly confess atheism, Philip Blom says that all of his friends were shocked and many of his friends dropped him like a hot potato. It's one thing to talk about not believing in God, but to call oneself an atheist, well, that was shocking, even to the intellectual crowd of the French Enlightenment. Isn't that remarkable? A couple of years ago, sociologist Gene Twang wrote, a, wrote a, a book describing today's generation of middle school and high school students, and she says something very interesting, not writing from a Christian perspective at all. Uh, she says that uh, middle, middle school students and high school students today represent the largest generation of atheists in the history of the world. Well, think about that, how things have changed since Voltaire the suppression of, of the truth is what Paul is saying is happening. But of course, we know that the suppression of the truth is happening right before our very eyes. Paul describes homosexuality as another indicator of unrighteousness, uh, both in terms of behaviors, verse 27 of chapter 1, and in terms of passions and desires in verses 24 and 27 of chapter 1. And you know what? Just as atheism has become warmly accepted in the 240 years since Voltaire, homosexuality in all of its forms is becoming just as warmly accepted in a single generation. Now again, what does Paul call this? Paul calls the suppression of truth and evidence for human unrighteousness that proves that humans, well, they're just without excuse before God. He's made himself known and they suppress the truth. And so in verses uh, 18 through 31 of chapter 1, human unrighteousness is exposed in the cosmic ordering in the world and it's mysterious, but God is making himself known. Without the Old Testament, without the Bible, without an opinionated church, God is making himself known and has made himself known. And so man is without excuse. But here in chapter 1, Paul is telling us that human unrighteousness is exposed uh, not merely by the cosmic ordering of the world, but by the human ordering of the world. The, the way uh, humans themselves constitute a society, even that, Paul says, reveals human unrighteousness. I can explain Paul's transition in this way. In the very end of chapter one, Paul's talking about a proof of human unrighteousness that is established by the cosmic structure of the world. Think of uh, global uh, weather systems. Paul begins uh, by having us consider uh, a, a global climate, how the jet stream and the temperature of the earth and the oceans contribute to the, glo the global climate of the planet. And instead of global climatology at the end of chapter one, in the beginning of chapter two, Paul switches to the microclimate of a particular valley on that planet. And this is not God's cosmic ordering of the world, but rather the way humans themselves, well, they order themselves as a society. And Paul says in verse one of chapter two, therefore you have no excuse. There's the word again, O oh man, every one of you who judges. And I want us to stop there. O oh man, generically, all human beings, every one of you who judges. And this word for judge, 
Well, it's critical. It's the first time the word appears in Romans, and it stands out. What's Paul doing? Well, think about what it means to judge. To judge is to uh, assess someone or something based on a value system of some sort. At its most modest definition, that's what it means to judge. It's to make an assessment based on a value system of some sort. To judge is to call something in accord with that system or to call something out of accord with that system. In a sense, there's really no in-between. It's in accord or it's out of accord. And so when Paul uses the word judge, a whole host of systems ought to appear in our minds as we hear Paul. You know, the the system that Paul's referring to is uh, not described, is it? The system may be written or unwritten, and then we we make judgments based upon that system. Uh, The system may be a set of laws or a set of policies. Uh, The system may be uh, recognized expectations, or the system may be an established tradition. But whatever it is, Paul doesn't care. We judge. We set up some kind of system, and we make assessments based on that system. Now... There's actually a considerable debate in the studies of Paul over uh, who Paul is exactly addressing in chapter 2, verse 1. Is he addressing Jews or is he addressing Gentiles? Uh, Many suspect that because he mentions this word, uh, judge, that he's focusing his attention on the Jews. And that focus on the Jews begins here, chapter 2, verse 1. But this isn't my view. Paul doesn't refer to a law, which is a very Jewish word, until 2 verse 12. And I think in verse 12, Paul is uh, more particularly addressing a Jewish audience in the life of the Roman church. That's where I believe Paul begins to address the Jews. Uh, Here, he's addressing uh, anyone who acts according to or within a value system of any kind, uh, Jewish or Roman, local or regional, written or unwritten. The very existence of a value system in which one can judge in accord or out of accord, that's what Paul is talking about. Any system, he's not talking about the uh, Old Testament uh, system that the Jews would immediately think. He's including Romans in his accusation, just as he is the Jews. You see, there's a cosmic ordering of the world that God controls that exposes human unrighteousness, but Paul says that there's always some kind of human ordering of the world, and even that man-made system actually serves to expose human unrighteousness. That's what he means. So here's how it works. No matter what the system of values whether it be a set of policies, whether it be uh, a law, whether it be a constitution, whether it be written or unwritten, local or regional, no matter what the system of values, Paul says no person can keep it perfectly. How interesting that he he wouldn't define the system of values, but he says it doesn't matter, no human being can keep it perfectly. For everyone who can judge that a person is out of accord with the system, Well, there's always some way in which that very judge has not followed the system perfectly themselves. (laughs) You know, uh, some commentators think that here in the beginning of chapter 2, Paul is referring to all of uh, those 
proofs of man's unrighteousness at the end of chapter one. So for instance, a person may judge someone for, let's say, envy. That's what Paul mentions in 1 verse 29. But that person who has just made a judgment against another person because of envy, well, surely that very person is out of accord with one of those those, uh, other uh, statements or uh, actions that Paul's listed at the end of chapter one. So the one who judges someone for envy, uh, surely that judge is out of accord with regards perhaps to haughtiness, verse 31 of chapter one, or perhaps boastfulness, or perhaps a heartlessness. You see, what Paul is saying is he's saying that, look, no one's perfect. Even according to a human system, no one is perfect. In fact, nobody is perfect even according to their own internal system of values. Listen carefully to what I'm about to say. All of us, all of us in this room, we have these areas of our lives in which we would like to to grow in, to mature in, to develop in. This is not necessarily a Christian thing. All of us, even the most braggadocious, boastful person that we know of, someone who refuses to profess faith in Jesus Christ, uh, that man or that woman will surely at some point confess that there are areas of their life that they would like to improve upon, to make better. It's not a Christian thing. Anyone who confesses that they would like to eat better that they would like to exercise regularly, that they would like to volunteer more. All of those things are are wonderful to aspire to, but what Paul seems to be saying is that that very statement proves that you can't follow even your own system. You, who has decided that it would be better if you ate more healthily, you think that because you've devoted a great deal of your time not eating healthily. And the same with regards to exercise, the same with regards to volunteering. This is, in many ways, the micro-microclimate of human ordering. John Stott said that he uh, became a believer partly because he just knew that he couldn't, he couldn't maintain even his own standards, the standards that he would place on others, the standards that he hoped for himself. He was a bundle of failure. He could see his imperfection. And this is what Paul means when he says in verse uh, one, in passing judgments on another, you condemn yourself. Nobody is perfect. Each of us should see in perhaps a dark moment of life, perhaps a a restless night, each of us should see that we are imperfect even by our own standards. I judge a person for speaking disrespectfully to me but I have spoken disrespectfully to others before. I'm angry uh, uh, at a person for cutting me off in traffic, but I am sure that I've cut others off in traffic myself. I know of people who certainly need to get their lives together, but there's work that I need to do on my own life as well. You see what Paul is saying? Uh, Even in that uh, carefully man-made human-centered ordering of society. There's imperfection all over the place. John Calvin, when he looks at the beginning of chapter two, Calvin doesn't believe that this is a a chapter that that in the beginning uh, addresses Jews specifically either. Uh, Calvin believes that Romans two verses one through 11 uh, is addressed not to Jews specifically, but really addressed to hypocrites, those who think that they can dazzle others with their perfect ethic. But nobody can. 
which means all of us are hypocrites. And this is how human unrighteousness is exposed. And this is yet another reason why humans are, as Paul says, without excuse before God. Now, I said earlier that Paul, while he doesn't know the Roman Christians, he hasn't visited Rome, doesn't know their congregation, he does know how humans work. But in verses two through five, Paul makes a transition he knows how God works as well. He does know how humans work. He does know that all mankind is unrighteous before God, but he also knows how God works. And if human, righteousness is expo- if human unrighteousness is exposed in the human ordering of things, just like it's exposed in God's cosmic ordering of things, what then does this mean? And Paul makes an, a, an important connection in verse 3. Remember that in the cosmic ordering of things at the end of chapter one, uh, God's action was mainly uh, turning people over to their sins. God uh, allows them to pursue their sin, allows them to suppress uh, his truth. Three times at the end of chapter one, that's the action of God. But look at the action of God in our passage this morning in verse three. Uh, Paul tells us that there's another action of God. God will one day judge humanity for their unrighteousness. Why is it that you think that Paul uh, waits to bring up God's judgment here when he's talking about human ordering? Isn't it obvious why Paul is talking about God's judgment here rather than the, than the end of, verse, or of chapter one? He's talking about God's judgment here in this realm of human ordering because he's drawing a comparison. You know, human beings, they have no qualms at all judging fellow human beings based on a system of values. If someone doesn't comply, then someone should get punished. That makes sense to all of us. If someone doesn't comply to the system, they ought to get punished. Or you can change the system, but everyone needs to comply. If you expect that the human ordering of society uh, to work that way, well then... What about God's ordering of society? If you expect the human ordering of society to work, that it has to prevent people from escaping judgment, that judgment component has to be present. Well, what about God? Brothers and sisters, if we think that there ought to be judgment according to uh, uh, any human system that we might have in this land locally or, or, or federally, if we think there ought to be judgment there, how much more so for God? You see, what, you see what Paul's doing? We actually understand judgment. We do it every day. We're imperfect ourselves. Our judgment is always hypocritical. But God is perfect righteousness. And his judgment is never hypocritical. Let me see if this will help. Think of writing a human legal code, but actually never enforcing it. You have a legal code, but it's never enforced. Do you think people will merely submit to the code because after all, it's such a good code? It's it's so worthy that they'll just willingly submit and everything will be just fine. Do you know what? I'm actually old enough to remember when the Google search engine first came online. It was 1997. By the way, if you're curious, I was running a, a compact 386 computer at the time. Anyone know what that is? But I knew about Google in 97. 
And then in 2000, after the company grew a bit, uh, I remember, and maybe some of you remember, that Google actually had a corporate code of conduct that simply said, don't be evil. Does anyone remember that? I remember that. Don't be evil. And I thought it was witty. I, I thought it was clever. I thought it, it, was the on, it was the only, it was something that uh, you could say only if you sincerely meant it. I didn't really think that. But don't be evil. Well, in 2015, the code of conduct actually became a change. It became this, do the right thing. You see, they, they don't want to iron out the specificities. Don't be evil, but do the right thing, and everyone will be happy, right? And yet, and yet, earlier this month, the companies had to make adjustments to their policy because it turns out Google was actually not doing the right thing, certainly not with regards to their female employees. The, the human ordering of Google, it needed correction, and it needed, it needed enforcing. Do we think that God is as sloppy as Google? And so Paul asks us in verse 3 if we think that God will not enforce his own ordering system. We enforce ours, won't he enforce his? And Paul puts us on the defensive in verse four by asking us to reflect on how we bargain for our lives before earthly judges. When there is some point of a human ordering in which we're shown to be lacking for whatever reason, maybe when we're caught not paying our taxes or when a spouse reminds us that we actually aren't exercising regularly, how do we respond without admitting that we're wrong? Well, how do we do that? If I want to respond but never admit that I'm wrong, this is what we do. Well, Paul uh, knows that people don't like to admit that they're unrighteous. He knows that they don't like to admit that they're unrighteous. That's why chapter one and chapter two are so lengthy. If I don't want to admit my unrighteousness, how do I respond then to a judgment that I receive from the federal government or from my spouse? Well, I might try and negotiate my way out of it. Again, if I don't want to admit wrongdoing, talk my way out of it. I also might just sheepishly laugh the charges off. Oh, you're mistaken. I didn't do that. Or we might, uh, we might actually uh, try and tickle the judge's ears. We'll, uh, we'll say something like, well, look, I didn't, I didn't, really, I didn't really mean it. And besides, come on, we, we all do it. You know, whatever the path of not admitting our guilt, not admitting our unrighteousness, really all it is is it's self-justification. And Paul calls that out. We recognize this even in the human ordering of the world. And so Paul gives us verse 3, and he asks, what does it look like when God is the judge? Not when there is an earthly judge, and not when you are being judged by a member uh, who is also a creature of God's. What does it look like when God himself is the judge? And Paul's right in assuming that if God's the judge, we're likely to do something pretty similar to what we do before an earthly judge. We're gonna avoid repenting. We're gonna avoid admitting that we're unrighteous. And instead, Paul says we're going to presume upon God. We're gonna presume upon his uh, kindness without doing what we should do in the first place, and that is, to fall on our faces and admit our unrighteousness. Remember, all of us are without excuse. All of us need the gospel. All of us need to fall before the righteous judge in humble repentance. He is right, and I am wrong.
And in verse five, Paul tells us what humans are prone to do instead of repenting. My translation of it is that humans are prone to kill time. I'm saying it this way because as an unrighteous human being myself, I I know that procrastination, denial, that, as hard as that sounds, that sounds an awful lot better than what Paul says, which is storing up wrath. I call it procrastination, possibly denial, but he calls it storing up wrath. Storing up wrath is not what unrighteous humans like to call it. Keep in mind that at the close of chapter one, um, unrighteous humans practice atheism, practice homosexuality, and yet Paul calls it suppressing the truth of God, and it is. But if you're here today, this morning, and you've not confessed before God that you are an unrighteous person in need of grace from the righteous God, then you are right now, according to Paul, storing up wrath for yourself. You're not putting the decision on the back burner. You're not mildly procrastinating. And really, you're not just denying this question. Paul says that you are storing up wrath for yourself. I realize that you would never call it this, but the Bible does. And Paul means to be very clear, uh, not obtuse. That's why he has placed this teaching about the judgment of God and your role before a righteous judge. He's placed this body of teaching right in this section that deals with the human ordering of society. He's given you an analogy. If you have committed some offense right now today, you, if you've committed some, committed some offense and you're currently running away from the law, waiting only makes it worse. We all know that, even without committing or, or, or uh, telling me that you've committed a felony, you've, you've escaped and you're running away from the law. All of us know that if you have committed a crime and you weren't caught and you're currently running away, waiting only makes it worse. Let me put it this way. If you're living with the guilt of an unconfessed criminality, but also in unconfessed sin. It's true for you as well. Waiting, it only makes it worse. Do you get what I'm saying? Do you get what Paul's saying in verse five? This is true for unwritten value systems as well. There's a sense in which this doesn't have to, we don't have to be a Christian in order to understand this. If you have deliberately offended someone and you have yet to apologize, waiting only makes it worse. My non-Christian friend would, would agree with that. Yes, it's better not to let that hover over you. Waiting only makes it worse. You see, isn't Paul being so painfully clear? He is giving us this truth about God's judgment and our position before him right in a section in which he is talking about something we all know very much about, the way human beings structure themselves as a society. If, Paul, if you have refused to confess your unrighteousness, Paul believes you are not merely being passive or procrastinating or acting in denial. Paul says that you are actually, if you are not repenting before the one true God, you are actually being feverishly proactive. 
You're storing up wrath for yourself. That's where this word shows up elsewhere in scripture. To store up is to treasure. It's to, it's to stock up on something. Paul says to refuse to repent before God. Well, you're not passive, you're active. You're storing up and you're storing up God's wrath and it only gets worse if you wait. Now, I wanna tie things up here, but notice this, that a critical part of the gospel is that unrighteousness is real and that God's righteous punishment of unrighteousness is real. There will come a day when God's wrath, when God's wrath is seen, when those things that you currently just feel mildly in your bones, well, that's gonna be made clear. You feel it a little bit, that there's something about the world that's broken, that's not quite right. There's something about you that's broken, that's not quite right. You you sense it because God has made his uh, invisible qualities uh, visible. That's really the, the takeaway from the end of chapter one. You sense it now, but in the day of wrath, it will be unmistakable. And then at the beginning of chapter two, your inability to keep perfectly your own value system, something that you know to be true, well, one day on the day of wrath, that is going to be made with the profoundest clarity. Jesus himself will stand before us and we will see our unrighteousness with great clarity. Now, uh, given what Paul says, we can uh, put it this way. If you feel this morning that you're doing pretty good by earthly standards, certainly better than most, but you've not believed in the gospel for salvation, the Bible says that you have done something to yourself. Let me me say that again. If you're here this morning and you feel pretty good about yourself, your status, cosmically, uh, politically, legally, feel pretty good about yourself, especially in comparison to others, and yet you have not repented before God, the Bible says this about you. The Bible says that you have, in effect, anesthetized yourself. Your heart feels fine, does it not? Your heart feels fine. The the job is right, the friendships are right, the reputation is right, the career is tracking okay. All of your neighbors are, not by by far, but they're just a little bit worse than you. But if you've not repented before God of your unrighteousness, and cried out in need for his unrighteousness in Jesus Christ, well, you have anesthetized yourself. Your heart feels fine, but Paul says it is hard and impenitent, and it is leading you to store up wrath. That's what Paul says about you. And the solution, Paul says, is the power of the gospel. That's what he's introduced at the beginning of chapter one. He says that the solution, the only solution is the the powerful working of the gospel, powerful enough to soften the heart, powerful enough to empty the heart of its own self-justification, powerful enough to enable the unrighteous to admit that unrighteousness and to be cleansed and cared for, picked up and held and guided by the one righteous God. Now, I want to finish with two things. You see, Paul, he doesn't know the Roman church, but he knows enough about how humans work and enough about how gods work to really say that he knows all of them. He tells us that God has made himself known in a variety of ways, uh, uh, cosmically and in the structure of human society. But the two things I want us to conclude with before praying are these. The first is this. Don't think for a moment that God is silent. 
He has made himself known in creation, but he's also made himself known in our imperfect ordering of society. God has made himself known. We think that we don't need God, that we can create a moral ethic that can give us everything that God says we uh, ought to exhibit in our lives. But God says even that human ordering of which you are imperfect to fulfill, God is making himself known. And this is what we mean when we say that God is sovereign. God is loud and noisy. God makes himself known cosmically, but almost everything that you do displays that God is real. Paul says in Acts chapter 17 that God is the very source of, of our existence, of our breathing, of our being. To exist and say that God does not exist is, well, it is an eternally damning contradiction. God is not silent. That's that's the first thing that I want us to finish with. And the second thing is this. You and I, all of us, have an obligation to repent. Not merely because of the earthly church, not merely because of the words of the Bible, not merely because of cultural expectations. Uh, We have an obligation to repent, not merely because this is mom and dad's hopes and wishes for us. We have an obligation to repent, not even because God has revealed himself in the cosmic order of the world. We have an obligation to repent because we are profoundly unrighteous. From the fall of Adam in Genesis 3, we are broken. We are utterly desperate. You might be able to paint over your life in this world to such a degree that you don't look desperate at all. Paul disagrees. God has made enough of himself known for you to see that you were completely and utterly desperate before him. You know that if this is all that there is in the world, it's not good enough. Millionaires say this, poverty-stricken people say this. If this is all there is, it's not enough. And you're right, it's not enough. God has made himself known. And the gospel... The gospel is the only honest message that we hear today. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the righteousness of Jesus covering your unrighteousness, that is the only honest message of the world today. Everything else is marketing. Everything else is biding time. It is the gospel that is the power of God for salvation. And in that gospel, the unrighteous are covered by the righteous. You are obligated to repent. Let's pray together. Our Father, we we thank you. From one perspective, we thank you as Christians that you remind us of the power of the gospel to make the unrighteous righteous before you because of your great affection and sending your only begotten son. And so we thank you that that audience can be assured by this message. But we also thank you, Father, that there is an audience here uh, of individuals who have not repented before God and they think that they are on the fence. But your word says that they are not on the fence. We pray, Father, for Uh, the kind of uh, terror 
that would make them cognizant of where they are right now. And we pray that they would ask the question of individuals here this morning, what think ye of Jesus? Tell me about him. We thank you, Father, for the power of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.